0: Hello and welcome to Laboratory Considerations from Q Squared Solutions. I'm your host, Chris Connor. Q Squared Solutions is a leading global clinical trial laboratory services organization, providing comprehensive testing, project management, supply chain, biorepository, biospecimen, and consent tracking solutions. Our work is rooted in research, grounded in collaboration, and guided by our passion to turn the hope of patients and caregivers around the world into the help they need to learn more visit q2labsolutions.com that's q the number 2 labsolutions.com today i'm speaking to alex watt the global head of biotech integrated laboratory solutions at q squared solutions alex welcome Hi, Chris. Good to see you again. And also today we have Alan Wookie, Global Head of Companion Diagnostics at Q-Squared Solutions. Alan, welcome.
1: Thanks, Chris. I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: All right. So this is the second part of a three-part series on clinical trials for biotech companies. And today we're going to focus on risk management for clinical trials. So, Alex, start us off and just uh, let's take them maybe one at a time, but some of the risks that sponsors may not have thought about when they're preparing for a trial.
2: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Happy to start us off here. And actually, with my background in project management, I'm quite passionate about risk and how we approach risk. So I'll share my thoughts. I think when we discuss risk, often what's focused on is the negative threats in terms of risk and where we need to mitigate or avoid threats to the project that could impact timelines or deliverables or or quality. But risk, if you break it down, is just uncertainty. So risk can also be positive opportunities that we can leverage to improve the speed of delivery for certain aspects of the study or even perhaps some cost savings or efficiencies. So I think one of the most overlooked areas of risk management is that uncertainty around opportunities that we may want to leverage to improve delivery of the study. And that could be something like outsourcing a certain test to a new lab partner. Um, it could be leveraging a new process operationally for a study, or it could be using some new software that's not been used before for that trial. Uh, they could all have positive outcomes, but because they're not well used by uh, um, a customer or the trial sponsor, they could, they could be at risk, um, but it could be a positive opportunity. Uh, I think in terms of negative threats, the, the more traditional area of risk focus in our industry from a lab perspective i think we touched on some of the kind of areas in our last discussion we see a lot of risk attached to um, global logistics and supply chain particularly in the current post pandemic world and i think that's often an area that's overlooked in terms of preparation for studies and how we manage those risks appropriately we also often encounter risks around the uh, analytical requirements for for studies around assay validation and qualification we often see Risks arise around there, but that's a thing that I see quite frequently.
1: Maybe I just add, Alex, to what you said about validation because I think within uh, pharma and biotech there's often a misunderstanding around the work that goes into delivering a validation package, particularly for a new assay. Many central labs might have many assays on the shelf, but the requirements and the, increase, the, intri- sorry, the increasing requirements. Of, of science and biomarkers in clinical development often mean that new assays have to be validated. And I think it's, it's really important for the sponsor to understand that there is a process that the central lab has to go through to, to do that, and that does take time.
0: Can I jump back to the opportunity you were talking about, Alex, and you know, the opportunity maybe to outsource to new third parties? How do you evaluate that in terms of taking advantage of an uncertainty and maybe we can do something different here? But how do you decide yeah, it's, that? it's a great without- question. I think
2: there's obviously the commercial aspect. So is there a more cost-effective solution than what's been used in the past? There could also be a you know a quality aspect um, or, or a data aspect in terms of, A lab could have a a test that's more um, fit for purpose, depending on the intended use of the study, or there could be new technologies that aren't being leveraged currently that could provide more insights, for example, into relevant biomarkers uh, for that particular research project.
0: But what do you do to bring those on board at the moment that you're thinking about a study? Because there must be some as Alan was talking about time to develop those things and know that they're gonna be usable?
1: Yeah, maybe I can uh, answer that, Chris. I think there's a couple of things that we do as a lab. We, we have already a set of outsourced labs that we work with that have been qualified by Q-squared. They've been through some form of audit, some sort of technical diligence to ensure that they competent to, to, to do the, the work that we require them to do at Q-squared. We have a fantastic menu, we don't do everything. So we are reliant on on, on um, outsourced labs to do that. But many of the labs that we're sending assays to have already been validated. So we sort of circumvent some of that time concern.
0: Got it. Are there other risks we should talk about or do we move on to talking about how you are all managing the risks we just laid out?
2: Yeah, I think you could probably categorize risks into three areas. Um, If you look at a study from a laboratory services perspective, Chris, so I mentioned already, sites and countries are where we see logistical risks um, around import and export, movement of samples. Um, And then if we look at the requirements of the study from a testing perspective, there are risks there that I'll mention around the requirements for assay validation, the timelines, the level of qualification that's required for that and that could also be linked to the delivery of the study in terms of blinding and other data requirements linked to analysis. And then the third bucket would be around the study design and the actual um, INP that's used in the study as well. So, for example, if you've got a genetically modified um, product that could require some special handling or, or um, regulatory requirements for moving samples around if there's samples that are radioactive that has got also special requirements if something has been treated with some kind of isotope as part of the clinical assessment and then other things that are linked to the, the collection of samples required by the protocol so they're the three areas that we teach our project managers to focus on when they're looking for risk factors in a project.
1: I think also from a science perspective because as you said many most clinical development programs or nearly all oncology programs have some form of biomarker strategy and one of the things we try and do to sort of manage risk within those development programs is to use, use our sort of collegiate sort of science and, and medical experts uh, through the early engagements so to try and um, establish the right biomarker for the right intended use even before the protocol's been written and that's sort of tries that that in, in essence does manage some of the risks and some of the science variables that are measured in clinical development.
0: This is a common theme on this whole podcast series about early engagement and thinking about all these things that you might not have thought of that mm-hmm. will help meet your timelines right that's really yeah. a lot of what we're talking about is, yeah. is preparation. Alex talk a little bit about systems in place to to manage those, what does it look like on your end?
2: What we're doing at Q Squared is a quantitative risk management approach. So there's three steps to that. The first one is to identify the risks. So look at the project specifics, look at the requirements of the customer, the external environment the study is going to be operating in, and then identify risk owners. And our teams all leverage various SMEs in our business as part of that process. So as Al mentioned, our scientific experts are really key here, depending on the scope of, of the study. Then the next phase is to quantify the risks. So understand what the probability of that risk occurring is. And if it does occur and become an issue, what the impact of that would be. And then rank those risks based on the probability times the impact. And then the third step is to work on the response development, a plan to manage the risk appropriately. And that could be mitigation. It could be avoiding a risk. It could be observing. Or in the cases of the opportunities we talked about, it could be leveraging those opportunities and actually enhancing the project delivery through that, that route. And then all of the risks, um, the quantification assessment and the plans are saved into our risk register. Uh, And that's then um, shared in a a cloud based tool that we can access um, for our teams around the globe and share with our our customers and partners as well. Uh, And we want to look at risk, not just as a planning element of the study at the start, but. something we look at whenever there's a change in the study if there's a change in scope or a change in the external environment that that impacts the study we would look at our risk planning and we visit that then Um, and then any kind of key milestones throughout the project as well as a key time to look at at risk assessment so when we have the initial study protocol and requirements obviously when we do the the planning when we look at the countries and sites involved and then as we get into enrollment um, and then pass enrollment into active phase and, and towards close Every time we have a study milestone, it's, it's the time to look at the risk plan again and reassess.
1: I just add one thing in terms of risk from a science perspective. One of the things we try and do at the company, uh, we have a, we have what we call like a science scientific review process, which has a, a proper critique of the new opportunities um, across uh, um, our organisation. That involves. Not just uh, evaluating a budget for a particular program, but also what is the technical risk of taking this on, if it's, if it's a novel assay, for example, and having that critique by subject matter experts, lab directors, to ensure that we do take something on that we can deliver upon it. And if we feel uncomfortable about it, then we, we, we may in, indeed decline that opportunity. So, uh, yeah, so there is a pretty robust internal process for reviewing new science opportunities.
0: I was curious about the uh, probability times the impact, which I'm not going to ask you to go into, but (laughs) I'm assuming in all those things, when you talk about your risk planning, then there are certain flags that people are looking out for, like, oh, this is happening. We should implement whatever mitigation strategy.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So we have um, certain risk factors that we um, include as part of our risk management training for our teams. So that gives the team some guidance around certain areas that we see commonality around risk across projects. And then if we dive deeper into different therapy areas, we can look at what are specific risks associated with that kind of therapy area, you know, oncology, cardiovascular, neurology, et cetera. And then even further with certain types of analysis that occurs specific to those kinds of therapy areas. So. Um, the teams are using that to help inform their planning as well. Uh, And what we're trying to do is a kind of iterative learning process where as we support projects, we identify risks, we look at how effective those plans were to manage the risks, and we look at what issues occurred based on that as well. So if I'm a project manager starting a new study, I can go back and look at our bank of risks and issues that were for similar projects in the past, and I can inform my risk planning based on that database as well. So we're trying to always improve based on past experience.
0: Okay, so that's all on your end of how you're managing risks. What can sponsors do to ensure timely and accurate and usable data on their end?
1: Maybe I'll start on this, Chris. I was you know thinking about this. I had worked on the other side of the fence, so to speak, in pharma for many years. And I think one of the things that's a challenge for the central lab is is when we is when there's amendments made to the protocol that we don't always get we're not always made aware of particularly we, we tend we tend to sort of build our solution around on the table of assessments within a protocol and if they're changed without our, us knowing then that can impact that timely um, usable data that's going to go back to, to, to the sponsor so that's one thing you'll keep the lab updated of any protocol amendments. And 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 we regard, you know, a project it's it's not oh it's with project management now and, and it stays there. It's it's an iterative process to you know until database lock really to ensure that um we have that, that dialogue. So I think in essence no surprises. Um and and that would that, that helps.
2: Yeah, Alan, we touched on our last discussion that Chris and myself had around the importance of early engagement and discussing the requirements. For the lab, in terms of different tests, where they're going to be performed and the intended use of that data from the test, so we can make sure we had the appropriate level of you know qualification for the lab, validated for the assay, and also understanding from a data flow perspective where we need to get all the different data and endpoints at what time in the study. So, I think as we discussed in, in some depth last time, Chris, that's really important as well. So we're almost kind of starting with the end in
1: mind right what are the data products that they want and then how are we going to generate those and i also add one other thing chris just in terms of early early engagement which seems to be a common theme i think it starts with the rfi process as well from the sponsors and the rfp process and the best the the the, the best responses that qsquared as a lab provider are the ones where the rfis are clear to to, um to, to respond to they're not they're not um they're not vague. the 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 questions are particularly specific, and and therefore that that engenders a sort of a, you know a common trust and an alignment through through the process.
0: That makes total sense. So, Alan, give us a few examples of where the scientific expertise of your staff or any you know central lab might be needed outside of what the sponsor is bringing to the study.
1: I mean, I think no two sponsors are created equally, and and often you you have sponsors that have st- strong scientific and translational science expertise within, within their own um, within their own companies. I think where Q-Squared solutions is, is particularly strong and I mentioned it before is, is around validation um, um, and how is the assay going to be used in the clinical trial managing the, um, the validation according to the sort of intended use of the assay? Uh, I think that's one thing. But also I think the biggest one of the biggest weaknesses in all my years um, that's with sponsors is around the regulatory side of, of assays and, uh, and science. We have regulatory experience at the company that can help sponsors ensure that the uh, assay is, is, can be used in, re- in a regulatory filing, for example. You know, the worst case scenario is you develop data that can't be used because you didn't follow a certain procedure, you weren't... Um, you know, compliance to to the regulation. So I think that's that's the second thing. And I think the third thing is, is, I hate to harp on it, is around early engagement. It's the fact that Q-squared Solutions is a large, we have a large, what I call a science collegiate, and we've got uh, expertise from the sort of, you know, IVD, diagnostic, pharmaceutical world. And what we try and do, we just try and bring our best practices and our experiences, our pearls of wisdom, to the next opportunity. And because pharmaceutical success, it is will will help you square the solutions succeed.
0: It makes sense that you will have, because of the nature of your business, seen many different regulatory scenarios and have yeah. kind of a broader yeah. basket. And, and, and
1: those regulations change. I mean, the biggest one that's on our doorstep at the moment is 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 in Europe with with IVDR and the impact that's having on many of the assays that we not just we run but other companies run in Europe, and having the expertise to direct sponsors. Um, in, in the right way can help manage some of the risks they may fa- face further down the path if, if they don't adhere to these new regulatory guidelines.
0: So that makes me curious about how you set up a study to meet both European and American yeah. or global yeah. requirements and have it yeah. all work. Do you, is there yeah. more to say about that?
1: Yeah, and, and that's a, that, I think that's a really good question because I mean q squared solutions is a global is a global central lab and um, we we strongly believe and we have really good processes in place to ensure that the assays are harmonized so if we run an assay in beijing it's the same as running an assay in valencia california that's that's the, the general philosophy of, of of the company but the regulations are different in the us the difference in europe to what they are in 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 china and you know, outside the sort of the scope of this core, I mean the lab, the whole laboratory developed test area is different in those three regions. And we have to ensure that we are adhering to to, to the uh, regulations if we are using lab developed tests, particularly for patient selection and uh, being able to direct sponsors, accordingly, and ensuring our own lab processes and validations are robust enough to support those different geographical um, uh, circumstances.
2: Yeah, I think, Alan, that's where having our global footprint and the capabilities to do the same test, albeit with some different regional requirements in our laboratories, you know, in, in Europe, in Asia Pacific, including in China and in the US, are
1: a strength of the business, right? Definitely. I, I, I just think that the world we work in now with clinical development, you have to have a global solution. And, um, you know, there are many. You know in terms of our experience many of our our experiences are global they're not just us or not just europe or not just china they they are global
0: talk a little bit more about how that scientific expertise applies to the actual clinical trials
1: i believe that many of the biomarker strategies and the science that goes into clinical development now it sort of falls into the sort of the questions that pharma and development programs are asking, particularly around uh, things like pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, proof of mechanism, proof of biology, proof of concept, patient safety, resistance. All those things go into the thinking of a transnational scientist when he's developing his science for his clinical development program. But in terms of what q squared, uh, how it tries to navigate that with the assays, I think it comes down to the most important question we consider is what is the intended use of the assay how is that ass- how is that data going to be used because that drives everything that drives your your, your level of validation where you're going to run the assay etc so i would finish by saying that broadly it falls into two camps as the science going to be used for exploratory de- internal decision making purposes you go down one path but if the, the data is going to be used for patient selection or clinical decision making it goes down another path and when we engage responses, you know, from sales, from science, that's the most important question to ask. That
0: lines up nicely with the conversation Alex and I had recently. Alex, do you have any takeaways for us for this whole thing? you want to add on to that?
2: I, I think Alan summarizes it nicely where we, we need to get the key understanding from our customers. Um, I, I do think that as we discussed earlier in the chat that Understanding risk and looking at it as both positive opportunities and negative threats is is an important strategy to really be successful in in managing risk. And yeah, just the more that we know earlier, the better our planning and risk planning is going to be uh, to support a study for our, our customers.
0: Nice. As always, if you've listened to a few of these podcasts, early engagement is the takeaway message Alan Wookie and Alex Watt, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Pleasure. Thanks, Chris. To learn more, visit q2labsolutions.com biotech. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can find Laboratory Considerations wherever you get your podcasts.